talk about um, about that very topic. And if you look on your, your update, the title this morning is Don't Be Surprised If the, if the World Hates You. Um, I, I think most people are aware of the fact that persecution is on the rise all over the world today. This is a very interesting book, The Global War on Christians by John Allen. And he makes this statement in the book, the worldwide persecution of Christians is the most dramatic religion story of the early 21st century and definitely the most underreported. Now, here's what I found really interesting about this, about this book. He claims that while 30, maybe 31, 32% of the world's population will, will claim to be Christian, more than 80% of all the religious discrimination around the world is directed toward those who are followers of Christ. And he has this, this estimation that he, that he puts in the book. He, he estimates there have been 70 million martyrs since the time of Christ. I have no idea to evaluate whether that's true or false, but that's what he claims. 45 million of them have died in the 20th century. In other words, more Christians died for their faith in the last century than in the previous 19 combined. Now, that was the result of him doing a lot of research into what's going on with regard to persecution. Around the world, the worst places are the places that I've circled there on the screens. And just yesterday, there was a report, half a billion Christians facing global persecution. Now, we probably know a little bit more about that because we're blessed to have, as our neighbors, the Voice of the Martyrs, uh, you know, right down the street there. So maybe in the city of Bartlesville, we're a little bit more aware of this than other people are. But global persecution is a thing that is in the news quite a bit, and more and more books are coming out about this. Meanwhile, back home, it's interesting to read various different articles Religious persecution is on the rise. It's time for policymakers and academics to take notice. Um, I've seen a number of different articles like this, like this recently. Um, however, when we look at what's happening at home in America, we don't see the exact same kinds of things as we see in North Korea, Eritrea, Iran, parts of Iraq, and places like that. We don't see that. So there's some people who say, well, okay, in America, is it, is it persecution? Is that too strong a word? Is that an okay word to use? And the word that I've been using more and more recently is this term, escalating systematic intolerance. Escalating systematic intolerance. Some of you are laughing because you think, yeah, right, a big word, Rod, you would use that. <laughs> but here, here's why I use that. If you're uncomfortable with persecution, it definitely is intolerance. It's definitely escalating intolerance, and it's definitely systematic. And so here's how it typically works in, in, in our culture. In our culture, stage one is that you, you stereotype a group, and then you express open contempt toward that group, and then you marginalize that group, and then you reduce the power of that group legally. And uh, boy, have we seen evidences of that in pockets around the country. For instance, a Florida ministry to the poor is told to choose between following Jesus and helping their constituents. If they want USDA food, they've got to drop the pictures of Jesus that are there 
in their place. This is a Christian nonprofit giving food to the poor, and the local authorities are saying, you gotta take down the pictures of Jesus if you're gonna get USDA food. Intolerance, a Missouri Park Service begins a new policy requiring churches to apply for special permits to perform uh, baptisms in public waters like rivers and lakes. Now, that, that, po that policy was, was enacted and then an outcry came from the churches because, uh, because churches were, that were used to baptizing in rivers and lakes were no longer able to do that. I, I got baptized in Lake Tawakany when I was in college. That was a really cool event for me. That policy said no more unless you, unless you register for that. Uh, a university professor demands that a student write the name of Jesus on a sheet of paper, then ask the class to stomp on the name of Jesus. And there was a student who refused, and he was disciplined. Now, the teacher ended up being disciplined because that was inappropriate. But you see the escalating intolerance that is beginning to creep into the culture. A city in California is sued to remove a Christian symbol that had been on their seal for the past 100 plus years. That seal has a cross on it, gotta be extracted from the seal. That seal had the picture of an angel on it, gotta be extracted from that seal. So, do those things amount to persecution? Well, maybe not. But it definitely is systematic, escalating systematic intolerance. So what, what do you as a Christian do about this? How should you think about this? Well, I know some people who respond in fear because they, they listen to the news, they read the books, and they ramp up fear and anxiety, and they're worried about what's coming, and they live out of a sense of worry. I know a lot of people like that. I know others who say, oh, that's ridiculous. That's nothing. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Those are two opposite ends of the extreme. Jesus has something very specific to say about persecution. It was a, it was a big theme in his ministry at the beginning in the Sermon on the Mount. He has a lot to say about persecution in the Sermon on the Mount. He has a lot to say about it in his teaching to his disciples as they go off on their missionary journeys. And he has a lot to say about it toward the end. And if you sum up what Jesus says about persecution, I think you might, might be able to say this. If you're a disciple who is abiding in Christ, you must anticipate the reality of persecution and live inside it wisely and boldly. If you're a follower of Christ, part of being a Christian is that you anticipate it and that you live wisely and boldly when it takes place. You don't fear it. You don't discount it. You anticipate it, but you live widely, wisely and boldly when it takes place. Now, as Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he has a lot to say about persecution again. And so let's, let's take a look, first of all, at Jesus' words. He wants them, first of all, to be prepared. And what he's going to tell us is that the world is not going to tolerate your love for Jesus, and they're not going to, it's, it's not going to tolerate your Jesus-centered values. Here's how he puts it. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. 
They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I, I put in yellow those two statements there because what Jesus is doing is he's, he's saying, I want you to remember that I told you persecution is going to come. And when it does come, I don't want you to fall away. Now, now think for a, minute, for a minute about the context of this. Remember, they celebrated the Passover in a large upper room. The atmosphere in that upper room was awkward. The disciples were fighting and bickering over who would be the greatest. Judas Iscariot is there fully intending to betray Jesus. It's an awkward, tense time. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's a wonderful thing, but they hadn't washed each other's feet because they didn't, nobody wanted to take the lower position. So Jesus gets up and washes their feet. It's, it's a wonderful time. It's a bit of an awkward time. And finally, Jesus says, okay, let's, let's leave the upper room and let's go. And they leave the house. They walk through the streets of Jerusalem, brightened by the full moon. They exit the city gates of Jerusalem, maybe the eastern gate, maybe the, maybe the other one. Uh, they now begin to cross the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they cross the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus teaches them about abiding in Christ and about transformation. We talked about that last week. And you might think as a disciple, man, this Christian life thing is going to be awesome. All I got to do is abide in Christ, and I'm going to encounter answered prayer. I'm going to encounter unity in the body. I'm going to encounter all these wonderful transformative things that are going to make the Christian life awesome and victorious. That's what I'm going to encounter, right? And now Jesus says, actually, the Christian life is awesome. It is supernatural, but you are going to get pushback. You're going to get pushback. And what he's trying to do is warn us that, yes, the Christian life is a supernatural life, but you need to anticipate there are going to be times where people will push back on your faith. So here's what he says, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He's not saying if the world hates you, like, well, they may and they might not. He's saying it with the idea that, you know what? You will encounter people who will hate you because of your faith. So let's see exactly who is going to hate us. Notice the term world. Notice the term world. I've defined this many times before in the Gospel of John, but let me define it again here. When we use the term world, we normally refer to the world of finance, the people who are in the financial industry, or the world of the arts, people who are in the artistic realm, the world of athletics, people who are involved in the sports realm. We use it to define a culture or a subculture. When we think about all the different subcultures of the world, and there are many of them, every subculture around the world has one primary motive, and that is to make life work apart from God. So when you look at the term world, if the world hates you, 
What the world is, is that whatever culture you're in, whose ethos is to make life work apart from God. So when you're out in the world, you're around people who want to make life work apart from God. And now you bring your love for Christ, you bring your passion for His Word, you bring your love for the people uh, who, who belong to Christ, you bring that ethos into the world, and there's going to be friction and conflict and difficulty. And Jesus saying, I just want to warn you that your values and the values of the world are going from time to time to cause friction. So Jesus is making this clear in chapter 15, verse 18, and he makes it clear again in verse 19. If you were of the world, meaning if you got your identity from the world system, the world would love you. Hey, you're one of us. You're trying to get your meads net apart from God too, aren't you? Well, here's how we do it in the art world. Here's how we do it in the finance world. Here's how we do it in the athletic world. Here's how we do it in the world in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Here's how we do it in the world in Tulsa. Because every geographical expression of the world and every niche expression of the world always has the same thing. Make life work apart from God. Well, if you're, if you're deriving your identity from the world, the world's going to love you. But if you're not deriving your identity from the world, and Jesus says, I called you out of the world, uh, now the world is going to say, I hate you because your values are diametrically opposed to my own. A group of concerned parents in Minnesota decided that they would uh, form, uh, they would push back on an organization that taught alternate views of sexuality in kindergarten. And these parents were, were, were saying, we, we don't want this taught in kindergarten. That's, that's not an age-appropriate time for this to be taught. The group claimed that there was no objective moral standards for the teaching of sexuality. And so they got, this group said, we want to get it on the school board agenda. We want to just present that we don't think this is appropriate. Well, they were treated with contempt, and the organization sponsoring this particular sex ed class sued this group of Christian parents. And then an organization in a different state said this group is a hate group, and now this group of concerned parents, concerned about their kindergartners and their first-year-olds, was the object of hatred and contempt on the editorial pages of this, of this newspaper in Minneapolis. Here are parents just, just wanting to train up their kids well. The group of Christian parents saying, we want our kids to value the God-given gift of sexuality. We don't want this taught to them in kindergarten and first grade. And now they're labeled nationally by a group as a, as, as a hate group. That's systematic, it's escalating systematic intolerance that's happening around, around the world, around the country. Now, here's why Jesus is warning us of this. He says, I, I've said these things to you to keep you, keep you from falling away. You know, you know what, that, what that tells me? That tells me that every follower of Christ is vulnerable to being pressured 
into minimizing and or denying his or her faith. We're, we're, we're vulnerable. We, everybody in, in this room has their, has their limit. If this happened to you, you would be tempted to say, you know what? Maybe not. Maybe not. Jesus says, I don't, I don't want that for you. What, what I want for you is the strength to know this is going to happen and the foresight to know I'm going to push back on this when it does. So how do you do that? How do you push back on the pressure to minimize or to deny your faith? Jesus gives us two ways of doing this. The first way of doing this is to seek the fullness of the Spirit. The first way to do this is to seek the fullness of the Spirit. Verse 26, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I love the context of this verse. You know, it's, it's, this is a wonderful verse about the Holy Spirit. And often we take this verse out of context and we use this to describe how the Spirit is our comforter and our counselor and our paraclete. It's all, it's all great. But the context of the entire passage from 5, uh, I think it's 18, through 6.4 is the whole context of persecution. What Jesus is saying is if you, if you want to be able to push back on systematic escalating intolerance and or persecution, you need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Let me make some observations about this verse. First observation is that the Spirit is a gift of power. The Spirit is a gift of power. The Holy Spirit gives you real, tangible power to deal with intolerance. I want you to think of in, in literature and movies about some examples of power. This is Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings trilogy in the first one, The Fellowship of the Ring. You may remember that the Fellowship of the Nine gets to the elven kingdom called Lothlorien. While they're in Lothlorien, Galadriel gives Frodo a, a vial that vial is a bright vial that can be used to defeat enemies. As Frodo goes on his journey, he has real power. At least in the book, he has real power, right? In the book and the movie, he's got real power. Now, why do authors, so many authors, create literature where the protagonist has a gift of power? Because that's what all of us want. All of us want that. You see the same thing in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember Susan Pevensey, the four Pevensey children are the ones who get into Narnia, and Susan Pevensey has a, a trumpet, and all she has to do is blow that trumpet in Narnia, and she gets help from the Christ figure named Aslan. Now, I, I could tell you many, many other examples in movies and in literature where the hero of the story gets a gift of power. Why is it that we want that so much? Because there's something about the human heart that craves real, tangible power to defeat our enemies. Well, so Jesus comes and he says, you got a gift of power. He is the helper. And the helper is going to give you not, not pretend power like the movies, 
or pretend power like literature, but he's going to give you real spiritual power that you can call upon when you are in a difficult situation. Is that cool? That's awesome. We have real power that we can call upon in a time of intolerance or persecution. Here's a second observation about this verse. The Holy Spirit is also a gift of presence. He's a gift of power. He's also a gift of presence. To understand this, we've got to drill into the word helper a bit. It's a compound word, and it literally means one who comes alongside to render aid. Sometimes it's translated um, counselor, comforter, or friend. Uh, it means to come along alongside. And the idea of coming alongside is the idea of presence. It's the idea of presence. I heard a great illustration of this in the book by Atul Gawande, Being Mortal. If you have not read this book, it's one of the best books I've read for people who have a loved one facing end-of-life issues. It is fabulous. So Atul Gawande is a surgeon, um, and uh, he has written a, a bunch of different books, but he was, he was researching uh, about surgery and the end of life. And he said, you know, what, what's so bothersome to so many of us in the medical profession is that we do all these things in the hospital to keep people alive, and all the statistics now, the studies now are saying that people's quality of life is better if they're left to go home and face the end of their lives at home, not in the hospital. And he told a story about a, a retirement home where the people in the retirement home were, were, they were not thriving, they were declining. And one of the workers brought her dog to work. It was a beagle. The beagle scampered into the hospital, jumped up onto the bed of the most needy patient, <laughs> and then curled up next to the patient. In the, in the weeks that came, they allowed this to happen, you know, day after day, because it, it was doing some good. In the weeks to come, that patient, who was not thriving, began to thrive, got up, and began tending to her plant that had been given to her. It was the dog that did it. So they began to experiment about having other dogs coming, coming into, the, into this retirement center. This retirement center ended up having the best results of all uh, the retirement centers under, under this umbrella, healthcare uh, umbrella. It came about because of, because of the presence of the dog. The dog was a gift of presence. And, you know, the Spirit works in, in a similar way. He is a gift of presence. But here's the deal about the Spirit. He's a gentleman, and he will not force his presence upon you. If you, want the, if you wanted the gift of the presence of the dog, you had to receive the, the dog into your room and into your bed. If you want the, the gift of the Holy Spirit's presence to really be with you, you've got to receive him and receive his ministries in your life. A third observation, the Holy Spirit is a gift of prayer. He is a gift of prayer. Now, we don't see this from the Gospel of John, but we do see this in, um, in Romans chapter 8, and verse, verse 26, because what the Spirit does is He is, we're weak, we don't know how to pray. The Spirit 
knows how to pray. He knows us. He knows the mind of God. So what the Spirit does, it takes, takes our feeble prayers. He reprays those prayers according to God's wisdom, and He makes those prayers effective. So you're facing persecution. You're facing escalating systematic intolerance, and you think, I, I don't know how to, how to pray about this. I don't know how to respond to all this stuff. The Spirit is praying for you. And that's part of the power that you have in confronting this. The Spirit is your intercessor. So I, I'm thinking about intercession, and I saw another powerful illustration of this in the drama called Poldark. How many people watch Poldark? Gosh, I love this show. I love this show. Uh, it's Napoleonic Britain, uh, early eight, late 1700s, early, early 1800s. Uh, the hero is Ross Poldark, and Ross Poldark loves the downcast. He loves the downtrodden. He loves the poor. He loves the needy. And there are two brothers who were about to be hung because they were starving and they stole bread. And Ross Poldark goes to the hanging, and he intercedes on behalf of the brothers, two of them are saved. The third one is not saved, but two of the brothers are, are, are saved. And what he says is, he says, gentlemen, now these are the magistrates, gentlemen, these men are starving. Is there no mercy in the land? Is there no mercy in the land? He's interceding on behalf of these hopeless, these people who are hopeless. That's what the Spirit does for you. Things look hope, hopeless for you. You say, I have, I have, I have no hope. I have no future. There's no hope of getting any good thing out of this. The Spirit uh, intercedes for you. One more observation about this verse. Uh, the Holy Spirit also reveals truth to you. He is the, the helper who reveals truth. He's the, the Spirit of truth. So, <clears throat> when you think about the Spirit who testifies of the truth, or the Spirit who reveals the truth, the Spirit has a very particular witness. You will also bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. Wait, the persecuted people are going to bear witness. People encountering systematic, escalating intolerance. Those are the ones who are going to bear witness. So, it's, it's not me bearing witness when things are going great. I'm abiding in Christ. My life's awesome. I love being a Christian. Of course, I'm going to bear witness to the Lord. It's easy then. But when you're facing persecution or systematic escalating intolerance, it's not easy. But the Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, empowers us to bear witness because we've got a story to tell about Jesus, Jesus being, being, being with us. So think about how this works. Mark 13, verse 9. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, but you will, stand you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. I look at that verse, and I think, wait a second. If, if I'm standing in front of the city council, and if I'm being beaten in a synagogue, am I going to want to stand before governors and kings and be beaten more because they're going to escalate it against me? I'm not going to want to do that. But then he says, but when they do, they do deliver you over, don't be anxious about what you are to speak or what you are to say. 
for, uh, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So the Spirit of truth gives you the ability to speak cogently under pressure. He gives you the ability to speak confidently even when you're feeling afraid. You know what I love about courage? You know, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is never the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to ramp up the choice to do right even when the fear is there. And what, what, the, what the Spirit is, is giving us is the courage to open our mouths trusting that we're going to have the, what we need to say right there specifically in the moment. So let, let's, let's think about what the Spirit does when we face intolerance. We have power. We have His presence, we have His prayers, we have His supernatural words. You encounter systematic escalating intolerance and it gives an opportunity for you to be filled with the Spirit and speak forth the truth in a place of courage. Just remember this about the Holy Spirit. He's a gentleman. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force Himself on you. He wants you to be at a place where you say, Spirit, I welcome you into my life. Spirit, fill me. Spirit, give me the words. Spirit, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sit right now in your presence, and I'm going to enjoy you. Have you ever done that? Have you done, have you done that recently? Went out to Osage Hills a while, while back, and I just sat down in my camp chair, put my feet up on the rock. I said, all right, Lord, I'm just going to sit in your presence and allow, to, allow you to minister your presence and your peace over me. When you do that, the Spirit begins to work that peace and that serenity more regularly into your life. He wants to be invited. Here's the second response to the hatred of the world. Focus on your position in Christ. Focus on your position in Christ. This is how Jesus puts it in verse 19. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what's your position? Out of the world. You don't derive your identity from the world. Jesus has now defined your value. Jesus now defines your purpose. Jesus fills you relationally with his presence. Therefore, you reside in a new place. Paul put it this way. Um, <clears throat> Colossians 1.13, uh, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. We were in one place, now we're in another place. You've been called out of the world. You've been called out of that place of darkness. Focus in on that position. When I think about position, I think about my grandson, Judah. Judah was, um, he was orphaned when he was an infant. Don't know why he was orphaned, but he was in uh, Uganda. And um, his birth mother uh, might, maybe she couldn't take care of her, maybe she, maybe she was sick, or maybe she died, don't know why, but he was orphaned as an infant. He was transferred from a place of orphanness to a place of being a son, from a place of insecurity to a place of security, from a place of no love to a place where he showered with love. He is positionally now in our family. So here's Judah and I at the beach. 
And I want to tell you what an incredible blessing He is to me. He's an incredible blessing. Because He loves God in an early age. Positionally, He's in our family. But positionally, nine years ago, He was an orphan. Okay, so, so, so that's you. That's you. You are at a fundamentally, fundamentally different place. You were in the domain of darkness. Now you're in the kingdom of His beloved Son. How many of you like, like act that way when you wake up in the morning and go, okay, I'm in the kingdom. It's, it's Monday, November the 26th, and I'm, I'm waking up. I'm in the kingdom of His beloved Son, and, and I'm going to live as a child of the King. Judah's living as a child of my daughter and son-in-law. He's living as my grandson. You have the opportunity to wake up on a Monday morning saying, I'm, this morning, I'm living as a child of the king. Pretty fired up about it. So <clears throat> then he goes on. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not a greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. But here's the cool thing. If you're living positionally in Christ, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So the idea is if you're living positionally in Christ, there are going to be people in the world who say, I, I want to I hear what you have to say. What is it that you believe about Jesus? I want to hear about that. So you're going to be in Christ. You're going to be living in the world. Yes, you may be hated by some, but there will be some who say, all right, I want to know what's, what's going on with you. You're a follower of Jesus. Let me know how I can become a follower of Jesus as well. So the, part of the reason why we had, we showed that, had Dale tell that story is because, you know, after the hurricane blew through Lombio, destroying most everything except for the farm, except for the farm, people in the city of Lombio wanted to know more about Christ. So now we have the nephew of the pastor being beaten and with, within half an inch of his life and he encounters a miraculous healing, and now people say, I want to know something about your life. So the payoff to living positionally in Christ is that God is going to give you opportunities to spread around the world. All right, now let me move to the takeaways. Three ways we can think in a hostile world. Let me, let me give you the main idea of this passage. The main idea is this. Because of our position in Christ and because of the Spirit of Christ, we have power to live victorious in a world growing more hostile to our faith. Now, what I want to do, just for 60 seconds, is I want to give you a catalog of all the ways that persecution is ramping up. You won't be able to write these down. I just want, I just want to give you a quick catalog. Social discrimination. Pressure, like on a woman to convert if she marries one of a different religion. Institutional discrimination. You can't get building permits. Employment discrimination, bias against Christians and military, for instance, in Egypt and public sectors. Legal discrimination, denying Christians access to courts or legal representation. Suppressing missionary activity, uh, Christian missionaries being arrested or deported. Suppression of conversion, lots of blasphemy or apostasy.
um, suppression of corporate worship, there's violence, there's community oppression where entire churches uh, are attacked. Again, all these things are happening, and what Jesus is saying is this, because of our position in Christ and because of the Spirit of Christ, we have the power to live courageously in a world more hostile toward the faith. So here's takeaway number one. When hostility rises, don't let fear cripple you. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the willingness to stay close to Christ even when you're afraid. Courage always includes an element of fear. When hostility arises, don't let fear cripple you. Ask the Spirit for courage. Embrace your position in Christ. Second takeaway, in the midst of hostility, we've got to rely more on the body of Christ. That was the pattern in the Bible. The apostles had been persecuted. The first thing that they did was they went back to their friends. The body of Christ was a shelter, a resource, a help to people who are being persecuted. I will tell you, I think we need more of that at Grace, at our church. We need more of that. Because I've had people at Grace tell me, uh, I've faced a little bit of heat because of my faith. And it's easy if you're not relying upon the body of Christ to succumb to fear. We need the body of Christ. We need that. I think we need to excel still more here at our, here at our church. Um, here's two guys who have a position. The guy on the left, Jeff Bezos, he is inextricably associated with Amazon. The guy on the right, Bill Gates, he is inextricably associated with Microsoft. Guess what you are inextricably connected to? The body of Christ. So if I were to put your picture up there, uh, we would have to put the logo. There's not a logo, obviously, but the body of Christ. And because you are in Christ, you need to be involved in the body of Christ vibrantly in order to deal with escalating systematic intolerance. Third takeaway, in hostility, we got to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I have talked to people who told me about the persecution, and I'm thinking to myself, you could have avoided that if you didn't act arrogantly. It's really important to not be persecuted for the wrong reasons. When Paul is about ready to get whipped, he's got a Roman lictor, he's is about ready to, to, to slam a whip down on his back, and Paul says, wait a second, is it common law for you to, to whip somebody who's a Roman citizen? The guy goes, oh. now you tell me. And Paul found a way to not get whipped. And I, I take it from that, that if you're wise as serpents and innocent as doves, you're going to make the main thing the main thing, which is Jesus. And, and if there's something that is like not the main thing, don't, don't get persecuted for something because you're, you're being arrogant or because it's, it's like a, a very minor thing. Make the main thing, the main, the main thing is Christ. The main thing is Christ and his values. Make that the main thing. That's takeaway num number three. So, 
back to the main idea. Because of our position in Christ and the Spirit of Christ, we're called to live courageously in a world ever more hostile to our faith. My encouragement to you is to, uh, is to just heed the words of Jesus in, in John 16, 1 through 4. He, he told these, these things so we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't fall away. He wouldn't, we wouldn't fall away. My desire is that we would not fall away. No matter what happens in the next year, five years, ten years, is that we would grow stronger in our faith, not weaker. Let's stand for a closing prayer. And we, uh, as always, have an elder who's going to come and, uh, and pray for us. Chuck Holland. As always, uh, if you want more prayer, further prayer, uh, the prayer team, members of the prayer team will be up front to pray with you individually if you'd like. Uh, so let's pray. Father God, uh, I don't think any of us uh, look forward to being persecuted. Uh, I don't think any of us um, desire that. Uh, but I think for me, um, I th would hope, I guess, that I would be one that the world would want to persecute uh, because of my life, because of my faith, because of my walk, my speech, my thoughts. So, Father, I just take uh, these words that Rod has led us through and, and to be strengthened uh, in my faith, but also to be wise, uh, to be confident, to uh, seek your spirit and the power and the words and the wisdom uh, to deal with the persecution that is bound to come at some point. So, Father, I pray that as we um, seek you more, that as we um, identify in ourselves an area of weakness or an area of need, Father, that we would, we would pursue you, we would ask you, we would run to you instead of away from you. Uh, Father, uh, I pray that our community, our people around us would, would shore us up and to keep us from falling away and that our hearts would always be tuned to you and turned uh, towards your spirit and your love. So thanks for the love, thanks for the grace and the mercy that you've shown us by giving us your son, uh, by allowing him to die and to shed his blood for our sins, that if we ask, we can have it. And Father, I pray that if that's not happened in anyone's life here today, that they will seek um, how to make that happen uh, very soon. Father, thanks for your love. Again, in Jesus' name, amen.